This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Good afternoon and welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky, and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends associated with objects in the evening sky, and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsor of Starry Nights. Well, first of all, our planet viewing for this month. Mercury in the morning sky rose only half an hour before the sun on the 1st. It reaches superior conjunction on the far side of the sun on the 29th, so it is unobservable all month. Venus, on the other hand, is a brilliant object in the evening sky, setting on the 1st just after midnight. During November, the fraction of the planet illuminated by the sun, as seen from Earth, decreases from 48% to 29%, but even so, it becomes more brilliant. Mars is even closer to the Sun than Mercury at first, that is from our line of sight. The two planets are only one degree apart on the 10th, a conjunction that will be extremely difficult to see. By the end of the month, Mars will be a little further from the Sun, but still a difficult morning object. Jupiter and Saturn are both easily visible in the evening sky, setting well after midnight. The Moon passes Saturn on the 10th, when they will be 5 degrees apart before midnight. The following evening, the Moon at first quarter will be a bit further from Jupiter. Using the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope, ESO's VLT in Chile, astronomers have imaged 42 of the largest objects in the asteroid belt, located between Mars and Jupiter. Never before had such a large group of asteroids been imaged so sharply. The observations reveal a wide range of peculiar shapes from spherical to dog bone and are helping astronomers trace the origins of the asteroids in our solar system. Only three large main belt asteroids, Ceres, Vesta and Lutetia, have been imaged with a high level of detail so far as they were visited by the space missions Dawn and Rosetta of NASA and the European Space Agency respectively, explains Pierre Vernaza from the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille in France, who led the asteroid study. Our ESO observations have provided sharp images for many more targets, 42 in total. The previously small number of detailed observations of asteroids meant that, until now, key characteristics characteristics such as their 3D shape or density had remained largely unknown. Between 2017 and 2019, Vernaza and his team set out to fill this gap by conducting a thorough survey of the major bodies in the asteroid belt. Most of the 42 objects in their sample are larger than 100 kilometers in size. In particular, the team imaged nearly all of the belt asteroids larger than 200 kilometers, 20 out of 23. The two biggest objects the team probed were Ceres and Vesta, which are around 940 and 520 kilometers in diameter, whereas the two smallest asteroids are Urania and Ausonia, each only about 90 kilometers. By reconstructing the object's shapes, the teams realized that the observed asteroids are mainly divided into two families. Some are almost perfectly spherical, such as Hygieia and Ceres, while others have a more peculiar elongated shape, their undisputed undisputed queen being the dog-bone asteroid Cleopatra. 
By combining the asteroid shapes and in, with information on their masses, the team found that the densities changed significantly across the sample. The four least dense asteroids studied, including Lamberta and Sylvia, have densities of about 1.3 grams per cubic centimeter, approximately the density of coal. The highest, Psyche and Calliope, have densities of 3.9 and 4.4 grams per cubic centimeter, respectively, which is higher than the density of diamond at 3.5 grams per cubic centimeter. Don't get excited. This large difference in density suggests the asteroid's composition varies significantly, giving astronomers important clues about their origin. Our observations provide strong support for substantial migration of these bodies since their formation. In short, such tremendous variety in their composition can only be understood if the bodies originated across distinct regions in the solar system, explains Josef Hannus of the Charles University of Prague, Czech Republic, one of the authors of the study. In particular, the results support the theory that, it, that the least dense asteroids formed in the remote regions beyond the orbit of Neptune and migrated to their current location. These findings were made possible thanks to the sensitivity of the Spectropolarometric High Contrast Exoplanet Research Instrument, SPHERE, mounted on ESO's VLT. All observations were conducted with the Zurich Imaging Polarimeter, the ZIMPOL, an imaging polarimeter subsystem of the SPHERE instrument that operates at visible wavelengths. Astronomers will be able to image even more asteroids in fine detail with ESO's upcoming Extremely Large Telescope, the ELT, currently under construction in Chile and set to start operations later this decade. ELT observations of main belt asteroids will allow study of objects with diameters down to 35 to 80 kilometers, depending on their location in the belt, and craters down to approximately 10 to 25 kilometers in size. A sphere-like instrument at the ELT would even allow imaging of a similar sample of objects in the distant Kuiper belt, giving a geological history of a much larger sample of small bodies from the ground. It's not always quite so cut and dry, unfortunately. In astronomy, comets and asteroids are defined very differently. Comets have a nucleus, usually made of ice and dust, and a tail when they get near the sun, which is the nucleus material shutting off from the comet itself. Asteroids, on the other hand, are small balls of rock orbiting the sun. Occasionally, though, some objects meet the criteria to be both an asteroid and a comet, and a team from the Planetary Science Institute, the PSI, think they have found a new one. The object, 2005 QN173, is located in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It is one of only eight known main belt asteroids to be active on more than one occasion. Being active in this case is defined as changing its orbital pattern due to something happening to the object specifically. Sublimation of ice on the object's surface is the most likely cause of any activity in the case of 2005 QN173. That activity is what makes this object unique when compared to other asteroids in the belt. Any ice that might cause sublimation would have been burned off billions of years ago as they have been exposed to the full force of the sun for that long. On the other hand, comets are only subjected to that solar power when on the perihelion of their sometimes very eccentric orbit. While farther away from the Sun, solar radiation has little, or no, little to no effect on the ice the comet contains. So it is a bit surprising when scientists find an object that outgasses like a comet, but is in the same position as billions of other asteroids. In this case, the author of the new paper on 2005 QN173 is also the person that discovered this whole category of unique objects, now called main belt comets. 
One distinguishing feature of 2005 QN173 itself, though, is its cometary tail. The object's nucleus is standard enough, with a 3.2-kilometer-wide cloud around it. However, the object's tail is strangely shaped. It is more than 720,000 kilometers long and only 1,400 kilometers wide. As described in a press release from PSI, if the length of the tail was scaled to the length of a football field, it would be just 20 centimeters wide, with the nucleus being half a millimeter across. This elongated, skinny tail means that the particles it is formed out of are only leaving the object's surface very slowly. However, solar pressure is probably not enough to eject the dust particles off the surface to form a tail. Henry Hesia, a senior scientist at PSI and lead author of the paper, thinks that the 2005 QN173's rotation might help contribute to the energy needed for dust to escape, but cautions that more observations are required before finalizing any models of the comet or similar ones. Long ago, similar objects might have been the source of much of Earth's water. Models of the early planet suggest that a lot of the water Earth currently holds was initially delivered by main-belt asteroids in the early life of the solar system. If that model is accurate, then studying anything that still looks like a comet after billions of years in the asteroid belt could help to prove or disprove that theory. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, broadcasting on 104.7 FM and 1431 AM. This program is Starry Nights. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Jupiter is clearly visible, almost overhead in the early evening sky. Amateur and professional astronomers have been observing Jupiter's most dominant feature, the Great Red Spot, for centuries. But just how far down does Jupiter's iconic Great Red Spot go? The deep roots of the centuries-long storm could be a clue to its longevity, according to new results announced by the team behind NASA's Juno mission. Previous work using the microwave radiometer of NASA's Juno spacecraft, still zipping around the giant planet every 53 days, probed the depths of the Great Red Spot. But while microwaves can help scientists peel back the top cloud layers, the microwave observations could only show that the Great Red Spot is still going strong 200 kilometers below the cloud tops. A new study now puts a bottom limit to its depth. Juno scientist Marzia Parisi of NASA's JPL led an effort utilizing two Juno passes that had the spacecraft zipping right over the Great Red Spot. The team also analyzed data from another 10 passes. Flying at about 200,000 kilometers per hour, that's about 60 kilometers per second when at its closest, the spacecraft's path changed ever so slightly because of the uneven distribution of mass in the clouds below. By measuring deviations to Juno's expected path to within 0.01 millimeters per second, researchers were able to peer deep within the planet. Parisian colleagues report that the Great Red Spot extends at most 500 kilometers down. The bulk of the storm's mass is, is mass is probably within the top 300 kilometers or so. Most of the scientific community was thinking the Great Red Spot was shallow, Parisi says. We were surprised that it goes so deep. Despite shrinking over the past few decades, the Great Red Spot is still wider than the Earth's diameter. So the storm itself is somewhat pancake-shaped, just a thicker pancake than scientists had expected. For context, Jupiter's stripes, the brown-red belts and whitish zones, extend much deeper, down to about 3,000 kilometers, or about 4% of the weight of the core. Nevertheless, the unexpected depth means that the pumpkin-colored vortex has its roots beneath the water condensation layer, indeed beneath the entire cloud layer, and well beneath the reach of sunlight. 
the finding gives scientists food for thought as they puzzle over the mechanisms that might drive the storm. While the most obvious of Jupiter's storms, the Great Red Spot, is far from the only one, amateur astronomers can see in the order of a hundred storm-like features on the King of Planets, and Juno's close-up view reveals on the order of 1,000 cyclones and anticyclones, pop-up clouds, and brown barges dotting the planet's surface. In a separate study, Juno's principal investigator, Scott Bolton, from the Southwest Research Institute and colleagues, showed, showed that these other swirls on Jupiter can also run deep, though not as deep as the Great Red Spot. They extend to average depths of 100 kilometers. However, Bolton noted at NASA's press conference that the Great Red Spot is not necessarily the deepest of all storms. The long-lasting cyclones at Jupiter's poles could also be in competition for the title. Jupiter's cyclones affect each other's motion, causing them to oscillate about an equilibrium position, says Juno co-investigator Alessandro Mura from the National Institute for Astrophysics in Rome. The behavior of these slow oscillations suggests that they have deep roots. Mura led a previous study of the polar cyclones. The measurements indicate that all the storms, not just the Great Red Spot, are rooted in regions out of reach of sunlight and the water condensation cycle, two processes known to drive storms on Earth. There might be small-scale processes at work, such as vertical winds or rain or hail or something other than pure water. The storm's depths might also indicate that the top weather layer is connected in some way to the planet's interior. The Juno mission should have plenty more time to explore the mysteries within Jupiter. After more than five years orbiting the giant planet, and with 37 close passes under its belt to date, it's ready for more. It was born ready. NASA recently approved an extended mission that will take Juno to September 2025 if all holds up. So far, the spacecraft is doing well, despite the dangerous energetic particle environment within Jupiter's magnetosphere, in part due to the longer and wider orbits that were originally planned. Bolton adds with a grin, the shields are holding. Aye, Scotty. Right, I'm going to take a break right now and just mention our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium in Napier. Now, unfortunately, the planetarium is closed uh, until the COVID alert level reaches one. Just the nature of the facility is such that we just can't possibly guarantee any kind of social distancing, especially under the, especially under the planetarium dome itself. Once we do reopen, the planetarium will be open eventually to the general public, and it's open on, it'll be open on Sunday evenings, 7 p.m. until 9 p.m., with the main show starting at about 7.15 no bookings are required, just show up, suitable for all ages. Uh, admission prices are $10 for adults, $6 for students and seniors, $25 for a family of up to six people. You can find out more information about the planetarium on our website, uh, www.holtplanetarium.org.nz. So once we're open and running, up and running again, come and visit us. The planetarium is located on Chambers Street on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. Giant planets like Saturn don't just tilt over all by themselves. Something has to knock them over, or tug on them gravitationally, to push them off axis. Scientists expect that when new planets are born, they form with almost no tilt at all, lining up like spinning tops, with their equators level to the orbital plane in which they circle around their sun. But no planet in our solar system is perfectly level. Jupiter is the closest, boasting an obliquity, or tilt, of just 3.12 degrees. Earth's obliquity is much more substantive at 23.45 degrees, causing us to experience an annual cycle of seasons as our home world wobbles on its axis. Uh, 
Saturn's tilt is more extreme yet, with an obliquity of 26.73 degrees, though it's nowhere near as extreme as Uranus, which is practically sideways, spinning at a 97.86 degree angle to its orbital plane. We can learn a lot from these obliquities. We know, for example, from geological evidence gathered during the Apollo missions, that Earth's tilt was likely the result of massive impacts with other rocky objects early in the planet's history, the largest of which broke off and formed our moon. Just as archaeologists examine clay pots and fragments of bone to piece together ancient sculptures, physicists can examine planetary tilts to understand the solar system's past. Modern-day wobbles are evidence of dramatic events long ago, or, as a new paper suggests, perhaps not so long ago. A team of researchers from the Paris Observatory and the University of Pisa, led by Melanie Salenfest, suggest that the origin of Saturn's tilt may be much more recent than previously believed, and that its largest moon, Titan, may be to blame. Astronomers traditionally believed that Saturn's tilt had nothing to do with its moons, but rather more to do with interactions between it and fellow gas giants. One mainstream theory of solar system formation, known as the Nice model, suggests that about 4 billion years ago, a great migration occurred in which the giant planets moved slowly outwards, under the gravitational influence of each other and smaller planetesimals. According to this model, the culprit responsible for Saturn's tilt was Neptune, which tugged the ring planet over as it swept outwards toward the Kuiper belt. If the Nice model is to be believed, planetary obliquities were set in stone a long time ago and have remained relatively stable ever since. The new theory proposed by Salenfest and the team disagrees. They suggest instead that a migration of Titan in the recent past, about one billion years ago, is equally capable of explaining the tilt Saturn has today. Titan's orbit may have remained regular for billions of years, but their model shows that an orbital resonance with Saturn could have occurred recently, simultaneously changing the Moon's orbit and forcing a nearly upright Saturn to fall sideways. It's hard to be sure which model is correct without more evidence. Perhaps the upcoming Dragonfly mission to Titan can turn up something. But the possibility of such a recent migration opens up possibilities for future changes to the solar system. As the researchers put it, the obliquities of giant planets are not settled once and for all, but continuously evolve as a result of the migration of their satellites. The solar system as we know it today may not be as stable as un or unchanging as it seems, and may be in for future disturbances to come. But don't panic, we're talking on timescales here of billions of years. In fact, here's what we might look like in the future, thanks to some very clever astronomy. A gas giant planet circling the remnants of a dead star has given astronomers a glimpse of what our solar system might look like billions of years down the track. The detection is the first to spot a Jupiter-like planet orbiting a white dwarf at a distance we might expect when a star runs out of fuel and dies. An international, international team of astronomers, including Joshua Blackman at the University of Tasmania, reported their celestial revelation in the journal Nature. It was a very serendipitous discovery, Dr. Blackman said. This system is a kind of window into the possible future of the solar system. Jaunty Horner, an astronomer at the University of Southern Queensland, who was not involved in the study, agreed. It's showing us that when the sun goes through this process, the giant planets are likely far enough away that they should survive. Astronomers don't know for certain how the sun will behave over the next 10 billion years or so, but they have a pretty good idea, and it's a fate destined for the vast majority of stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Right now, the sun, which is a pretty typical main-sequence star, is 4.6 billion years old. 
The heat and light it emits is produced as it fuses hydrogen into heavier elements. But eventually, in around five or six billion years, its hydrogen inventory will run out, the sun's core will contract and collapse, and its outer layers will puff up as it evolves into a red giant, Dr. Blackman said. The surface of the swollen sun will slowly but inexorably start encroaching on the solar system, and it's bad news for Earth. It will engulf the inner planets, so Mercury and Venus, even Earth, will likely be destroyed, Dr. Blackman said. But Mars and the gas giants further out will survive. That's the general predicted model of what's going to happen. After another few hundred million years or so, the sun will shrug its fluffy envelope into space, creating a beautiful planetary nebula and leaving behind a dead, dense core, a white dwarf. But planets tipped to ride out the sun's red giant phase may still be there with it, they just won't be as close. As its mass will be less than its hydrogen-burning heyday, the white dwarf's gravitational pull won't be as strong, and any planet still remaining will be orbiting further out than before. This is what Dr. Blackman and his colleagues found happening in another solar system for the first time. Many distant stars can't be seen using traditional telescopes, so they and other dim objects are detected using a technique called gravitational microlensing. It's based on the idea that the gravitational field of an object, such as a white dwarf, distorts the light shining from a star behind it, like a lens. If the stars literally align with Earth, astronomers see the light from the furthest star intensify and smear into a curve called an Einstein ring as it bends around the white dwarf. As the stars move out of alignment, the Einstein ring phase. The white dwarf and its gas giant, which sit around 6,500 light years, were first spied this this way in 2010 by the telescope at New Zealand's Mount John Observatory. But it would be years before astronomers worked out exactly what they'd found. By the time Dr. Blackman joined the project in 2016, more telescopes had observed the lensing event, including the much larger and more powerful Keck telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. We were expecting the star to be like our sun, a main sequence star, which is what we typically see, he said. So when we didn't see that, we spent a long time trying to figure out what we did wrong, before we could quite confidently say it was a white dwarf about half the mass of the sun. They also saw bumps in the Einstein ring of curved light, he added, signs of a planet lapping the white dwarf, closer than Jupiter does the sun today, but within the expected distance of a gas giant that survived its star's death. Gravitational microlensing hasn't found nearly as many exoplanets as other detection methods purely because it relies on the chance alignment of stars. Astronomers don't know when those events will transpire, so they point telescopes into space and wait for it to happen. But gravitational microlensing can pick up exoplanets that other methods can't, Professor Horner says. The transit method, where telescopes pick up momentary but regular dips in the star's luminosity as an orbiting planet blocks the light, is good at finding bright stars with big planets orbiting very close. The radial velocity method is also biased toward big planets circling near their star because it detects the ever-so-slight wobble of a star caused by a planet's gravitational tug. Gravitational microlensing can pick up dead stars that emit little light and have planets sitting further out. Think of it like a census, and you're trying to understand the breadth of humanity, Professor Horner said. The transit method is really good at finding children who are at nursery. The radial velocity method is good at finding children at primary school. This is a method that lets you find retirees. 
It's not the first time a Jupiter-like planet has been spotted orbiting a white dwarf. A handful have been found, such as this one reported last year, Dr. Blackman said. But none of those resemble what we expect to happen. Most are very close to their host star, like a Jupiter-mass planet ten times closer than Mercury, whereas our planet is in alignment with the traditional expectation of what's going to happen in the solar system. More Jupiter-like planets will be found whizzing around the dead, dim remnants of their star in the coming decades, he added. The upcoming Roman space telescope, earmarked for launch in the mid to late 2020s, will hunt for exoplanets using gravitational microlensing. The Hubble Space Telescope and soon-to-be-launched James Webb Space Telescope could be enlisted to help too, Dr. Blackman said. They can see much deeper into the sky, and we're hoping we can get a direct detection of the white dwarf in the future. White dwarfs are supposed to be the dead remnants of stars, doomed to simply fade away into the background. But new observations show that some are able to maintain some semblance of life by wrapping themselves in a layer of fusing hydrogen. White dwarfs are the dense leftover cores of sun-like stars, as we mentioned in our last story. They are exposed to the universe when stars build up too much carbon and oxygen in their centers. Then they tear themselves apart in a slow, agonizing process that eventually creates a planetary nebula. With all the other layers stripped, the core remains, a white dwarf. White dwarfs are inert. They don't have enough mass to ignite nuclear fusion of their carbon and oxygen, so they just sit there slowly raiding away, raiding away their heat, radiating away their heat for eons upon eons. However, new research is challenging that simple story. We have found the first observational evidence that white dwarfs can still undergo stable thermonuclear activity, explained Zhizhang Zhen of the Alma Mater Studiorium, University di Bologna and the Italian National Institute for Astrophysics, who led this research. This was quite a surprise, as it is at odds with what is commonly believed. Well, nothing surprises me there. The more we think we know what's going on, the more we find examples to prove that we're really not too sure what's going on. That makes astronomy such a wonderful thing to study. And that's going to do it for our program this month. My name is Gary Sparks, and thank you once again for listening to Starry Nights. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.